Flint Hill Baptist Church exists to glorify God by gathering, growing, giving, and going in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Find out more at flinthill.net. Amen. It is, it is a joy to be here in the house of the Lord with you. Uh, Brooke was asking me earlier when I was up here on the on the stage, she said, do you still get a little nervous or something? Like I said, all the time. I get nervous all the time. Um, I do. I do. I, I tell you what, it's, uh, my brother-in-law asked me the other day, well, what's it like? What's it feel like? I said, well, in my mind, I was thinking, well, it's exciting yet horrifying at the same time to uh, have, be commissioned to bring the Word of God uh, to God's people and to be a preacher and to share God's Word. And, uh, and, I, and I will say it's a great joy and a privilege, and it is exciting when, uh, not, not necessarily the preaching of God's Word, but when God's Word, as it was shared earlier and quoted, it's our uh, kind of memory verse, if you're here on Wednesday night with us, you know, word, God's Word is living and active, uh, inspired of the living God. It's not just a hist- history book that gives us uh, great information, but God's Word will come alive, and He is alive today. I mean, He, he is alive. He is alive. Uh, he hasn't left us uh, at all. He is very present. Now, the truth is that some of us and all of us have moments in our life where we feel very distant from the Lord for whatever reason. I mean, that is common. That happens. Uh, but I'm just standing before you today reminding you that God is very present, very real, very alive, and very, uh, very much wanting to reveal His plan, His purpose in our hearts today, even so today. You are all here. We are gathered here uh, in His name. And, uh, and, and, and if you were with, here, uh, with me last Sunday, uh, we're going to be in this kind of series. Um, I'm not always the best at coming up with series or even coming up with the four C's or the five P's or whatever it is in a message. But, and there's nothing wrong with that. There are some people gifted at that. And believe it or not, I have some C's today. I'm going to share with you. It's okay. I know. I know. I know. But I don't, I'm not going to sing a song. Well, I might. You never know. Don't have a poem that I know of. But anyway... Um, but we're in a series called Encountering God, and it really is straightforward. Uh, the moment God just began to nudge my heart, the opportunity to be able to come back with you and to be here for this season, I just really sense in my heart, and, and I know when I say this, it seems audacious, but I believe God is preparing us to meet with Him in a unique way. And I mean that. And, and you say, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm not quite sure. I'll be honest, what does that mean? I really don't know, but I do know that God wants me to share passages of Scripture that I'm gonna, I've titled Encountering God. I really don't know what else to say about it. Last Sunday was one. Uh, this Sunday, if you're with me, open your Bibles. Go ahead and open them up to 1 Kings 18, chapter 18. Uh, we're, there's a chunk of Scripture here, 16 through 45. We're going to be in this uh, section of Scripture. You will know real clearly it is about Mount Carmel. And, and, and if you've been in church long enough, you've heard about Elijah, and you've heard about the Mount Carmel experience and what happened on that mountain. We're going we're gonna to read through that. And quite honestly, some of the commentators in, uh, on this passage of Scripture said it's just really simply straightforward. Uh, I mean, it's there. I mean, there, there's not a whole lot of, that you have to pull out or try to explain. It's just pretty straightforward what happens uh, in this passage. But I couldn't help as I really began to read this passage and kind of dig into it, it, I just felt like I was in the midst of a movie. Now, not all the passages of scriptures kind of play out that way, but this one kind of felt like that. Uh, In fact, there's so much history, so much going on in this moment. You could have a prequel, a sequel. You could have all kinds of things going on here. And I I need to just share with you briefly, just hang on right there, 
Because if I'm going to do a kind of a backstory about what's going on, I've got to go all the way back to Moses in Deuteronomy. Just hold, you don't necessarily have to turn there with me. But in Deuteronomy chapter 31, uh-oh, hold on there. This is what happens when you pile stuff in your Bible. It just starts flowing everywhere. I know, I know. anyway, all right. Y'all don't know what I'm talking about. All right, so go back to, De- well, you don't have to turn there, but in Deuteronomy chapter 31, this is a Moses, kind of Moses' prophecy about the people of Israel. And in, uh, um, and in verse 24, he says, After Moses finished writing in the book of the words of the law from beginning to end, he gave this command <clears throat> excuse me, to the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. He said, Take this book of the law, place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. There it will remain as a witness against you. Now here's where it gets interesting. This is Moses' kind of last moments here. In verse 27, Moses says, For I know how rebellious and stiff-necked you are. If you've been rebellious against the Lord while I'm still alive and with you, how much more will you rebel after I die? I mean, it's just interesting. Now, I mean, I'm not trying to put a little dark spin on humanity, but I mean, Moses has been struggling for a while, and you can read the history there of the nation of Israel. I mean, really a people that God brought out of Egypt. I mean, how many miracles did he perform in their midst? And yet here at the end of his days, he's saying, look, y'all rebelled against me from the beginning. Y'all rebelled against the Lord. There's something uh, up in that. And then, and then coming back over to 1 Kings, just to give a little bit of backstory about where we are in, as we jump into this story on Mount Carmel, in 1 Kings 11, um, Solomon, you remember last Sunday, I mean, we looked at the prayer of dedication. The fire of God fell, the presence of God. God confirmed everything that Solomon prayed. But even Solomon strayed in his days, and at the end of his life, there's even a prophecy that happens in 1 Kings 11 about the dividing of the kingdom and how the kingdom would be uh, ripped asunder. And that's really what we're living in, and not so far from this time where God began to just move and give confirmation. And then all of a sudden now in... uh, Chapter 11, verse 33, he's talking about tearing asunder the kingdom and and the separation. Verse 33 says, I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, Molech, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in my ways, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my statutes and laws as David, Solomon's father, did. And, and it's just, a, I mean, it's really a sad state of affairs, quite honestly. I mean, if you were starting the movie, you'd probably be like, oh, it's kind of a bummer movie. I mean, it really, I mean, set the stage. I mean, and, it, and it's a sad day for the nation of Israel and sad day for God's people that all of a sudden, so quickly, they get diverted and, and, and taken away from what God intended for them, God to rule over them, God to be amongst them, to, to be present with them, and they turn so quickly to all these idols. I mean, in false religion, false worship. So, I mean, that's a little bit of the backstory when we come to 1 Kings 18, uh, where we'll get to in just a moment. But, but I have to say to you, there's, there's really four characters that really stand out in this story. And the first one is Ahab. And Ahab is the king of Israel. Uh, and, and, and again, just he's the son of Omri. We find this out. Omri, his father, really left him uh, kind of two things as a legacy. Just back up, verse King 16, just give you a little backstory here on Omri. He's the one that bought the hill, what they call the hill of Samaria, and he called it Samaria. He, he actually bought the hill, named the town, the, the, the city there. But also in verse 25 of 16, we find that his daddy, Omri, did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all of those before him. 
He walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. We'll get to that in just a moment because the Lord brings that indictment against uh, Ahab uh, as well. So, so Ahab is the king, but he inherits not only a city of Samaria, but he inherits his dad's history, his legacy. And by the way, I just, just a little side note, we are all leaving a legacy behind. And I'm not talking about the things that you have, but the, but the things that you believe in your history and your legacy, your heritage. What will live on beyond you? You know, I was reading the other day talking about, you know, I'm an I'm a athletic person, obviously. Uh, I mean, I don't mean that because you're looking at a specimen of athleticism. I didn't mean that. My daughter plays softball, if you don't know that. My son, and, uh, and now my youngest one is playing volleyball. I'm putting a little attention on her. That's real embarrassing in a sermon. Um, but, uh, but, uh, but my point is, I'm, I've been around athletics all my life. I love that. I love it tremendously. But I was reading just this week, I think it was Henry Blackwood, he says, uh, uh, you know, athletic, I mean, talking about leaving a legacy and talking about championships and talking about all these things. He said, so quickly, so quickly the world forgets who won the championships, right? Um, you know, unless you're just all in to remember those. Most of us don't remember who won uh, the Softball World Series Five years ago. Now, you're probably going to guess Oklahoma because they probably did. They probably did. But I, and some of you are going, why well, softball? You could have said basketball or something. I wouldn't have. That's my world. That's my world. Um, but Henry, Henry goes on to say, but you know what lives, think about this. What lives on forever? Eternally. Literally, what lives on forever? Because not everything in this age and this day right here will live on forever. Your accomplishments, some of y'all are majorly accomplished. I get that. Solomon was majorly accomplished, didn't live on forever. The legacy that God really wants us to focus on are the things that are eternal, things that are going to last a lifetime and, and beyond etern eternally, right? So anyway, um, just a little side note. So Ahab, um, again, in, in, in verse King 16, we begin to see in verse 29, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. He reigned 22 years uh, now, what's interesting, he shifts gears in verse 3. He says, Ahab, son of Omri, did more, listen, it did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Now, the Lord had just said that about his daddy. But now he's even progressed beyond his dad. And right, I'll be honest with you, wickedness never stays the same. It continues to get worse and digression and gets worse and worse and worse. And in, in Ahab's day, it's no different. Um, he not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, which is our next character in the story. Jezebel, uh, the daughter of one of the kings in Sidon, uh, Sidon uh, the Sidonians. Uh, she worshipped Baal. The people uh, of that area, the pagans in there, worshipped Baal. And, and quite honestly, most historians say that his marriage of Jezebel was more of an alliance than anything else. It was a kind of a... Uh, a, a way to shore up his northern border and kind of take care of business there. And so he married her. But not only that, he fell in love with the worship of Baal. And not only, I mean, not only did he just love the worship of Baal, but he, he not only adopted it, but, but Jezebel brought 850 of those false prophets with her and put her, put her in, a, in, in her house, fed them at her own table and took, took them in. He, he was hook, lion, and sinker. In fact, built a temple there in Samaria uh, for Baal worship, built an altar there to even actually worship uh, Baal at the altar there in Samaria. So we see those two characters. The third one's kind of an unlikely one is Obadiah in chapter 18, verse 3. Now we're jumping into here, but it says that Ahab summoned Obadiah. Now it's interesting, the, the Bible gives us a little 
footnote about Obadiah, he was in charge of his palace. In other words, he was a high-ranking official in Ahab's regime. In fact, Ahab trusted him. He was a trustworthy man. Why? Because he was a devout believer, the Bible says. Now, what I love about this is that as, as wicked and as vile was Ahab in his regime, God still had a witness and had a leader in the midst of it that was looking out for God's people. And I love that because you see in the midst of this, God is still at work, even in the most difficult, dark places around us. And some of y'all might be in that difficult, dark place today. You might be living in it. It might be your employment, your workplace. It might be your own life, what's going on. God is still at work in that moment. He has not forgotten you. He is there. Sometimes we don't see it. Sometimes we don't sense him. But I promise you, even so here, God is at work. And so Obadiah, and, and, it, and it continues on the footnote, Jezebel, how wicked was she? She was killing off the Lord's prophets. I mean, this woman was not just a casual worshiper of Baal. She came into the situation and literally said, I'm going I'm to decimate this Yahweh. I'm going to decimate this religion of these Israelites. Get rid of it. And so she actively began to just kill everybody that professed uh, allegiance to the one true living God in their mind. That's what she was saying. She was going to get rid of them. She, in her mind, she said, if I get rid of all these prophets, it'll just squash it all out. But Obadiah, uh, the Bible says, took a hundred prophets and hit them in, in two caves, 50 each, and supplied them with food and water. He was doing this under the radar, under the leadership of the Lord. And, and I, I couldn't help but to think, my mind begins to digress, and I think about great persecution you know, persecution still happens uh, in the world today. And, and I will say to you that, uh, I mean, it's real and it happens. And there, and there is persecution, yes, here in the States, but there is severe persecution in countries across this world in which we live. Where, where And y'all know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Where if you, if you were openly doing this today, you would be in harm's way. In fact, the church in some places in the world can't meet, congregate openly in this manner right here because it's against the law. If I was caught preaching the gospel as it's to persuade you, and I can't help but to persuade you, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, you ought to know Christ, and today's the day of salvation. You're not here by accident. But I would be found guilty and punishable even so by death in some places in the world today. And, and let me say to you, even in those great, severe, wicked places, God's people are thriving. His church is alive. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God God is wonderfully gracious in moments where there's great persecution. Think about it. Go throughout history. But even so today, I'm just reminding this church, even as wicked as it is, Obadiah is a, 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 a bright spot. It's a, it's a reminder that God is aware and is very present and is able to, even in the midst of great persecution, provide. The last but not least is Elijah. We see him jump into the scene in chapter 17, verse 1. It says, Elijah the Tishbite in Gilead. Now his name, Elijah, probably sums up his whole... Anything I want to say about Elijah. I mean, and there's a lot to be said about him. But his name is Yahweh is my God. At some point, at some place in Elijah's life, he made an allegiance and an a commitment to the Lord, the one true living God, and His name. It kind of put a print upon his heart, his mind. And he says, Yahweh is my God. There is no other God. And he was a prophet of the Lord. Uh, he was the one, he's, I mean, you know, uh, the main character in one sense here that stands up against this regime and against Ahab. 
Now, as we go from the characters, I have to, I have to say the context. I know I told you about my seeds, so here we go. So I'm, the Lord helped me. So now we're going to get into the context of this before we get to the climax. And y'all know where we're going on Mount Carmel. I get that. But it reminds us in chapter 16, verses 30 through 33, of Ahab's sin in the context. And, and, he, and he said here, he's already said, uh, not only did he consider it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. So, so he references this for a specific, re, specific reason. And we have to go back, if you want to, that's fine, to chapter 12. And in chapter 12, we see that Jeroboam uh, becomes king of the northern area, right? Two of the tribes went off here, ten of them go up here. And now he's kind of scrambling, trying to figure out what to do in chapter 12, verse 25. He fortified the cities around him, the main cities, because he was considering there was going to be a threat. Now you've got military powers vying for who's going to be the strongest, and they're, they're always concerned about someone attacking them. Verse 26, Jeroboam thought to himself. Now here's the trouble sometimes. I'm just going to be honest, a little side note. Sometimes when we just think to ourselves, we get ourselves in trouble when it comes to what we're going to do next. It just really emphasizes we ought to take everything to the Lord, submit to Him and His leadership, ask Him for His wisdom, but He doesn't do that. He goes, and it goes on, verse 26 says, He thought to Himself, the kingdom will now revert likely over to the house of David, right? That's in the southern area. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple, they will again give their allegiance to the Lord, Rehoboam, who is down there, king of Judah. And, and, here, and then He goes, I'm gonna, he's gonna, they're going to kill me, and they're going to return to the king down there. So he's in his mind reasoning all this stuff. So now it says in verse 28, after seeking advice. Now he doesn't quite tell us who he got the advice from, but it wasn't of the Lord. And by the way, little side note, there's a lot of people telling you what to do these days. I mean, if you stay around me long enough, I'll probably give you pointers on what you need to do as well. I can often be very opinionated, and, 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 but, but, but please hear me. There's a lot of voices, a lot of people, a lot of saying what you need to do, what you need to wear, what you need to talk about, what you need to think, all this stuff going on. But friend, just getting advice from people is not necessarily the best thing to do. But there's one that we need to seek advice from. But anyway, so the king, he doesn't do this. Verse 28, the king made two, here it is, after seeking advice, he made two golden calves. What does that remind you of? Go back to Moses, right? I mean, it's just a diversion. I mean, it's, here it is again. He made two golden calves. He's, he said to the people, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. It's costing you too much to go way down there and worship the one true living God. Here, I'm going to make it easier on you. Here are your gods, he said to them. Here he is, brought these two calves. He said, set up one in Bethel and one in Dan. He says, and this became a sin. And the people went even as far as Dan to worship there. Not only he built, not only did that, but he built shrines on the high places. He appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they weren't Levites. He knew what the word of God said. So now the king Jeroboam, he's doing all these things. Instituted, he instituted festivals. He had all these things to try to mimic the one true living God, worship and His plan and His ways. And all of a sudden, he's throwing all this other stuff out there. Ahab takes it to another level. So going back, he talks about the sin of Jeroboam. But not only that, um, but he also married Jezebel, the daughter of, uh, uh, of the king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. I, I mentioned to you earlier, Baal worship there in, in this area. Ahab took it to another level. He wanted to please, I guess, his wife, or maybe, maybe it was because he just really... Um, 
enjoyed Baal worship. I mean, much of what we read about Ahab, it really doesn't, and I'm not being judgy, I'm not, but there seems to be no indication that he really knew the Lord whatsoever. And here he is, rose, risen in leadership. And, um, and, and let me say this to you. I mean, this, again, uh, one, of our, one of my Old Testament surveys, just a little history here. Bell worship was, was, and he referenced here, not unpleasant or distasteful for most Israelites. And I, I'm giving a lot of, saying a lot of Ahab, but it wasn't just him, but it was the people in the area. It was very enticing. These idols that have been made, this temple, this place that had been made for this Baal God that had come in, all these prophets that had been shipped in from another area. I mean, there was so much going on. And quite honestly, it was a, it was a, uh, idolatrous worship that had all kind of passions. Uh, I mean, it, I mean, it says right here, passions for wine and immorality. In fact, Baal, one of the words there mean, means the Lord of the vine. So you know there was a whole lot of stuff going on. You can get the picture, right? We don't have to get all, you know, we can keep PG rated, but y'all get the idea. It's all kind of crazy going on. And it's attracting all, and not just Ahab, but a whole people of the nation are gathering together. Now what's interesting is here, um, one of the historians talks about this Baal worship. And how for the Canaanites, at some point around this time, they began to think that their Baal God was a universal God. In fact, there was a, hist a, a, a text. Now, 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 let me pause here. Because remember, Jezebel came from the uh, uh, home city of Tyre, and she had no problem bringing that with her. Why? Because she thought literally that Baal was the God of not only her city and her people, but this people. So there was a, there was a mindset growing in this pagan culture that, that, that this Baal is the one true living God, not Elijah's God, not Moses, not the God revealed in Scripture. So you see what's happening at the same time. You see what's kind of mounting. In fact, some of the historical texts, the, the, the title that was given to this Baal God that Jezebel brought with him was, in the word English translation would be Melkort, M-E-L-Q-A-R-T, and it literally means king of the city. So there's a lot going on here. So when she brings all this with her, she's not just bringing some another idol. She is bringing the one greater than others. There is no one like this one. In fact, this is the real king that she's bringing into the nation. You can see now why the prophets so opposed her in Baal worship. And you can see why she wanted to put them to death because the preaching and teaching of God's word says, what, what did he say? There's none like you. We've already sang that. Solomon, Solomon prayed that at the very beginning of his prayer. He says, God, there's none like you. I mean, we're, we're asking you to inhabit this place, this temple, to do all these wonderful things that we're asking now. But God, you, you created the heavens and the earth. How can you be contained in this house? It's gone from that to now, not only are they not even thinking that about the Lord, but now they've brought in an idol and said, no, 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 you're that. So you see the digression and see how the pollution of God's people has has come to this place because of Ahab's sin. And not only that, not only do we see in the context of the sin and how great and grave it is, but we begin to see God's judgment upon his people in this context. In chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, Elijah talks about him coming. And here's what he says to Ahab. As the Lord, this is chapter one, uh, chapter 17, verse 1 and 2, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, which he does live. He's alive, very much alive. You see that over and over again. He's the only living true God. Whom I serve, 
There will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. There's a drought. Significant. And then, and then Elijah just turns away from him and leaves him, runs from there. The Lord leaves him, uh, actually leads him to a ravine, and he's fed there. He's provided. We see the grace of God. He's provided by the widow. You see that? Again, the grace of God provides for Elijah all through this. And then in chapter 18, after a, verse 1, after a long time, this is the third year now. We're in the third year of the drought. People are suffering. Crops aren't growing. I mean, listen, nothing works without water. I mean, we know that. If any of y'all watch Homestead Rescue, y'all probably don't even know what I'm talking about. Rainy says, you can't have a homestead without water. You know what I'm talking about? Nothing lives without water. Randy, you probably don't watch that. I know. I mean, it's okay. It's okay. I, I digress. You got to have water. Water's a source of life. And there's a drought. The people throughout the land are suffering, horribly suffering. In fact, now, because nothing grows, we, we come to understand in verse 2 there's a famine that is so severe in Samaria. How bad is it, you ask? Ahab summons Obadiah. This is where he jumps into the situation. And it leads us to the next thing, because here's what happens. When Elijah leaves Ahab, Ahab begins to look for him everywhere he can. Because he wants to kill him. He wants to get rid of him. He thinks if I get rid of him, all this will change. He, he is so dulled in his senses. I'm not sure he even knows the Lord whatsoever. But listen, idolatry, sin will take you down that road. And he is so dulled by that. But how bad is this, the, the, the famine? Ahab gets Obadiah and says, hey, look, it's getting so bad here. We've got to, we're going to divide up and go in different directions and try to figure out where some grass is. Now, what's sad about this in the Scripture, in verse 5, he tells Obadiah, go throughout the land to all, to all the springs in the valleys. Maybe, listen to this, maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so we don't have to kill any of our animals. How pitiful it is that a king that oversees the people is more concerned about his animals than he is his people. You see the kind of man he is. Because I guarantee you there are people suffering in this. I mean, the judge, you see the judgment of God. It's harsh. But I, I will remind you, there's a God at work who's alive and well, and there's a sense of preparation. There, I mean, there really is. We're in the third year of this, and you say, man, that's severe. It is. It is. But God allows things to happen. Listen, this, this isn't my God's doing. God's choosing. God's people turned away, filled their lives with all. And all of a sudden, now they've gone down this road. And here they are at this place. God in His graciousness and His will will say, go ahead, keep walking. But all of a sudden, the consequences of that led them to this place of dire circumstances. There's a famine. It's as they're searching for them, as they're searching for this grass, Obadiah finds Elijah in chapter 18. And when Obadiah meets him in verse uh, 7, walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized it was him. He bowed down to the ground and said, Is that really you, my Lord? Interesting. He said, Yeah. Now look, verse 8, he says, Go tell your master I'm here. But doesn't this set up like a movie? I mean, it, the showdown's about to take place. I mean, I kind of, I'm, I'm feeling that right now. I'll be honest with you, I've been in this all week. The showdown is about to happen. 
Now, Obadiah was a little nervous because people have told Ahab that, hey, Elijah's over here, and they go over there, and he's not there, and then it doesn't go well. In fact, he says, hey, you know that if, if, I, if I come back with the king and you're not here, he's going to kill me. That's what he said. Because why? Because he's done that before. This is a ruthless man. Elijah tells him in verse 15, he says, look, as the Lord lives over and over again, God is alive. He's alive. Whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. The showdown has taken place. Now we're at the climax here. And we see it real simply here, succinctly. Stay with me. The meeting. And the meeting happens here in verse 16. Obadiah went, got Ahab, told him, Ahab comes to meet Elijah. When he saw him, listen to what he says, is that you, you old troubler of Israel? You're the reason why all this stuff is happening. You're the one that said it wasn't going to rain. And he blames him. You know what happens? People full of sin, they'll look at others and blame them. They don't ever look in the mirror very well. Right? What Jesus said something about don't take the speck out of somebody else's eye when you got a plank hanging out your head or something like that. You know, a little hyperbole going on. But I mean, that's what's going on. He said, you're the trouble. You're the reason all this is happening. He said, no, 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 no. I love it. Elijah says, oh, no, I hadn't made any trouble for Israel, but you have. You and your family. Why? Because you abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed Baal. You have given your heart and soul to an idol. And he said, look, you're the reason. Now, what's interesting in verse 19, he says, uh, by the way, that was the rebuke. He rebukes him there. I don't know if you're following along. Now, here's the plan. In verse 19, he says, then summon the people all over Israel and meet me on Mount Carmel. And by the way, bring all them prophets you got in your house. All those Baal, all that Asherah, all those idol prophets that you brought over, you shipped over here, your wife did, bring them to you as well. Bring them all. So you kind of sense. Now what's interesting to me at this point, you see how bad things have gotten in the conditions of the country because Ahab does exactly what he says today. Now think about that for a moment. If this would have happened three years prior, Ahab wouldn't even have listened. But Ahab, in one sense, has recognized that things are so bad, so severe, he's even willing to go along with this plan. He has no idea what's about to happen. But in his mind, he's like, well, okay, I'm going to go along with it. So here, to me, is one of the crux, pinnacle points of this whole climax right here. Elijah went before the people here in verse 21. He, everybody's gathered. Now, how long it took to get them all there, I don't know. I mean, thousands of people have gathered here on Mount Carmel. I mean, you know, they didn't have instant messaging and little, you know, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, communication. You had to send out the word and people had to come. It took a while to get there. We don't know exactly how long. But when they showed up... Elijah went before the people. He said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, follow Him. He has just brought forth the indictment against God's people. To me, one of the most pointed places in this, the stingingness, if you can see it, of the Scripture, is in what follows. The people said Nothing. Why? I mean, it's like, I don't know if you've ever been in a service before. I don't know if you've ever opened the Word of God and all of a sudden God just speaks to your heart. I mean, I mean I'm not trying to get all crazy and mystical, but I'm telling you, God's alive. He's alive and well. One of the things I learned early on, way back at Mobile College, when I opened up that Word of God, it's living and active, and all of a sudden you begin to read it, and all of a sudden God will take this Word and just begin to speak to your heart. Friend, when God speaks, there really isn't much to say. 
In fact, I've never been in the presence of the Lord when God begins to really speak and have any kind of arrogance. It just doesn't flow. In fact, when God, I don't know if this ever happened to you, when God really convicts you of sin and points out something, extremely humbling. Silence is probably the best thing to do. Sometimes you just got to keep your mouth shut and listen. And the people are just stung by the rebuke. They say nothing. But then here's the challenge. You see it laid out. I mean, this is just beautiful like a picture. Elijah said, I'm, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left. Now, he's not really. We'll get to that next week. But Baal has 450 prophets. In fact, they're all laid out right there. He said, now, here, here, here it is. He said, go get two bulls. You know the story. Choose for yourselves one. Let them cut it to pieces. Put it on, put it on the, uh, uh, the wood, but don't set fire to it. And he said, I'll take the other one. And I'll do the same thing. And then you know what? You call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of my God. And the God who answers by fire, He is the one true living God. And the people said, hey, what you say is good, Elijah. I mean, you kind of sense, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of living this moment right now. They're kind of taken away at this. No, okay, that sounds fair. That's what, that's what they're saying. That, that sounds good. That sounds fair. Now, Elijah... Obviously, being led of the Lord, he, he turns uh, to the prophets of Baal, verse 25. And all of a sudden, what, what does he do? He, uh, he tells them, he says, you choose for yourself, you do whatever you're going to do. So they took it, they prepared it. They called on the name of their Baal from no morning till noon. They're screaming and hollering. I mean, you can imagine, hours have gone by. They're dancing at noon, you can kind of sense they're, they're, they're struggling a little bit. And so they turn it up. They're going to get a little more excited. They get, they get kind of crazy. They start cutting themselves, bleeding a little bit. Now, now Elijah starts taunting them a little. That's, another, that's a little side story in the midst of the story. He tells them to scream a little louder. He said, maybe he's asleep. He can't hear you real well. Scream a little louder. I mean, he's taunting them a little bit. I mean, he knows where this is heading. I mean, he knows what's about to happen. And they, but what's interesting, they do it. They shout louder. They get going. Midday pass. They continued their frantic prophesying till the evening. Good night. They've been going all day. You can imagine if you were amongst them at that day, if you were some of the people gathering that day, at some point you're like, this ain't working. I mean, I can just imagine the frenzy, the craziness. You can imagine when they first did, you're thinking, oh my God, it's going to happen. Then it doesn't happen. And then hours and hours and hours go by. And the people kind of get bored with it. And they're thinking, this, this ain't working. Something's wrong here. It is wrong. It's interesting. Verse 30, I love this. A term of endearment. In the midst of this crazy moment. Listen to the words. Elijah says to all the people, come here to me. And what a picture of Christ, a picture of grace where Jesus says, come Come unto me. You know, all who are thirsty, all who are tired and weary, come unto me. You, you hear the word of endearment here. He's bringing them, he's bringing them in. And it's way more than this moment. And, and let me say to you, God is about to bring back his people to himself. Man, is it, God is a God of grace. He's good. His love endures forever. Thanks be to God. Even in this moment, even in this moment where God's people had turned away and did all this stuff, it's this, it's this desire of the Lord to bring them back. 
In verse 30, he says, come, come unto me. Now, they all couldn't come. I get that. But notice what he does. They came to him, probably leaders amongst the people. You can imagine there's leadership there of all the people, all the clans from all the people that came. But look what he did. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. That gives you a picture of where they were spiritually. They were in utter ruins. So he begins to repair it. What does he do? He took the 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Your name shall be Israel. Well, he's giving them a history lesson here, but it's more than that. God has a plan and a purpose for his people, and there's a design. And God intends to bring that forth. And man, they had turned away from that. And he's saying, look, look come on back here. Look, there isn't two kingdoms. There's one. And he's, he's bringing all these stones together. You can imagine the moment. Maybe the conviction. All kinds of things going on in this play. He, he says, your name shall be Israel. Man, they, they had forgotten who they were. They had forgotten literally who they were in the midst of this craziness. So they did that. They built the altar. And they dug a trench around it long enough to hold two seas of seed, which is about 13 quarts, they tell me. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four jars of water and pour it all over the offering on the wood. Do it again, he said. Do it a third time. So much so, the water filled up the trench. What's going on here? Listen, in this brief moment, God not only prepared a nation to meet him, he brought a drought and a famine. But in this moment, there's preparation taking place of rebuilding the altar. Elijah knows what's about to happen. The people don't. They don't even realize it. But Elijah said, we've got to get prepared. We've got to get ready. So he does that. But, all, but what, why is the water? Why the water? Do we need the water? Listen, Elijah knows what's about to take place, and he doesn't want anybody there going, oh, he, he, he did it some other way. He must have had some flint over here, and he threw a little spark on it. I mean, that sacrifice is dripping with water. I mean, in fact, the people standing there would, would probably go, well, that, was, that wasn't smart, you know. Why would you pour all this water on there? Why? Because Elijah knows what's coming. He's an, listen, he's anticipating what's about to take place, and he wants to make sure everybody here knows it ain't from me. I didn't make this up. I didn't somehow scheme this into playing, but God himself from heaven is about to bring it down. It's unmistakable. Let me say this. When God begins to move, it's unmistakable. It's not some, listen, it's unmistakable and undeniable, just like it is in this moment. So they do that, and there's water. Now, at the time of the sacrifice, Prophet Elijah, he steps forward. Now, look at this. He begins to pray, Lord, God of Abraham. Man, he's going way back. Isaac. Israel, he's bringing down the lineage. He is reaching back. There's one true living God over and over again. He said, let it be known today. Thanks be to God. God is still making it known today. Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and you've done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me so these people will know. What a beautiful term we'll know, be revealed to, revelation, understanding, intimately, passionately, personally. No, 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 that you alone are Lord, our God. And what else? You're full of grace. You're turning their hearts back to you again. 
And at that moment, fire fell from heaven. What an amazing moment, right? I, I can't even imagine what it would it like to be there. I mean, what would it be like in that moment when God himself made himself known? I'll tell you, I've been a blessed man. I really have. There have been moments in my life where I've seen God at work. And I've been able to stand intimately in his presence. And I've seen God move among high schools and cities and communities in this land and in other lands. And it is amazing, unmistakable, and humbling thing when God begins to make himself known. He does this. I mean, it, it kind of loses it in this moment for me to even tell you about it. But man, what an incredible time. God brings forth his revelation. Now, there is a consequence here. This is my last C, I promise. Now, this is, this, is, this, is, this is tough to swallow. When all the people saw this in verse 39, they fell prostrate before the Lord. Wouldn't you? I'd, I would. I'd been eating dirt at that point. I'd been thinking, God, I wasn't consumed in the fire at that point. I'd have been thanking Jesus that I'm still alive and thank you, Lord, that you hadn't forgot me. Thank you, God, for your forgiveness. And all of a sudden, they're just on their face before the Lord, crying, crying. He is God. He is God. I mean, you can get a sin. They are over, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a moment, an encounter like no other. Then in verse 40, Elijah commands the people to seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let them go. Not a, not a single one of them. They seized them, took them down to the valley, Kishon Valley, and slaughtered every one of them. And that's where it gets maybe a hard pill to swallow for, for us today. That, that's a, can I remind you? I'm, I'm, just, I'm, I'm not sugarcoating this one way. God's judgment is real, severe, and, and, and quick. It's swift. And in this moment, God made himself known, yes, but he eradicated the pagan idolatry and the leaders of them in that one moment. Now, let me, let me just share with you um, if I can find it here, hold on a second. I'll get there in just a moment. I want to share with you just a guy who's, who summarizes this and the severity and the swiftness of this judgment. He says, often in history, God, and I'm a rolling. He said, often in history, world greatest issues have depended on lone individuals. We see that here. Yet he says, yet few crises or crises have been more significant for history than that which Elijah is figured. In fact, you remember Elijah's in the story of the transfiguration and rightly stands beside Moses. Here's what his summary is. Without Moses, the religion of Yahweh, the one true living God, uh, figured in the Old Testament, would have never been born. You know that. And then he goes on to say, without Elijah in this moment, it may have died. The severity of the moment, the significance of the moment, the nation of Israel was not just polluting themselves with idolatry. Jezebel was wanting to elevate Baal as the one true living God. And emphatically, God said, no. There's none beside me. There's none even like me. And so the judgment is severe and swift and significant. Come on up, Gavin. When, when we see this, I, I can't help. And I, I, I want to remind us. Let me, let me remind us here today. I think Royce or somebody said it. Uh, for every person that's ever lived, 
I mean, unless Jesus comes back, there's a point in a, a place and a time for people to pass away and die. And then the judgment. Now, thanks be to God, we live in a day of grace. And we even see this in the story. And I don't have time this morning, but you can read the rest of it. Because the rain comes. Elijah prays and God just sends forth a flood of rain. Probably much like what I came through yesterday from Atlanta. I mean, it just rained and rained. But you got to remember the ground, they hadn't seen rain in almost three years. So even though there's judgment, there's blessings. And the blessing for us, for us, God is a God of grace and a God of love, yes, but there's, He's also a God of judgment. And friend, my, my word for us today, more than anything, is how long will we waffle or waver between two opinions? My heart this morning is this, church. I, I don't know where you are. I don't, I'm trying to still get to know people's names. Listen, friend, listen to me. And it may not be that you're in all this idolatry like the nation of Israel. It might just be that you're struggling with other things in life and you've elevated something higher than your walk with the Lord. Some issue in your life is bigger than the Lord. And I don't know what, where, and you may not even have that issue today. Then thanks be to God. But if we are there, please hear me. God is inviting you and me to return to Him. He is a God of grace. And how do we do that? Just like here. Turn away from anything that hinders, that's elevated, taking the place of, right place, of the one true living God in your life. And turn back to Him. Now please hear me on this one. This is a big crowd this morning. And I would not be surprised if somebody was here today and you've never even trusted Jesus personally as your Lord and Savior. Listen, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to play the role of judge. I'm just being honest and real. I've met people before that lived in the church, sat in the church, served in the church, leaders in the church, but never had a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. They had a personal relationship with the church, the building. But I'm talking about intimacy. Remember what he said? Remember what he said? just said? Do this, Lord, so they know, no, 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 no. No. That's a, that's, a, that's a word of intimacy, personal knowledge and understanding. Friend, if you're here today, and in everything that's happened, you recognize, I don't even know the Lord in a personal way. Today's your day. Please hear me. Today's the day of salvation. Today's the day to turn to the Lord, to trust in the Lord, to acknowledge Him as the one true living God. To repent of unbelief, repent of whatever. Turn to the Lord and trust in Him. I'm just going to ask you to stand with me this morning to your feet. And if you will, friend, hear me. And, I, and again, I know I'm, I'm coming in two Sundays in. I don't know how you've done your invitations. But friend, this is a time for you and the Lord to be very personal. Please, please, please ask of the Lord to show you, to reveal to you as He did to the nation of Israel, revealed to them and made it known on that day, listen, there's only one true living God. And if there's anything that He brings up, just repent of it and turn away. For blessings of the Lord will come. Bow your heads with me this morning.
Father, I'm just going to invite you right now during this time of invitation. You're already at work. You're already stirring hearts. You're already moving in people's lives. And I just ask you right now, Lord, God, make it known. Make it known. Whatever, that, whatever we need to turn from, confess, and Lord, let it be. And I invite you this morning, if you're here today and you need to make this your church home, if you're here today and want to trust Jesus personally as your Lord and Savior, following believers' baptism, I'm just going to invite you to come. I'm just going to invite you to come.